me pray and then we'll jump into that. Um, Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word. And Lord, thank you that uh, it reveals to us uh, your character. Uh, it reveals to us your will for our lives. And Lord, I pray we'd see both things today as we look at it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, Emmy and I uh, went on a hike in Elysian Park. And after we'd hiked up and up and up and up, which is funny I said it, we actually started about halfway up the, the tallest part of it, but it felt like it was up and up and up and up. Uh, after we got all the way to the top with admittedly quite a bit of heavy breathing on my part, we ended up on this cliff's edge overlooking Dodger Stadium. And uh, yeah, if you know me, I'm a baseball fan. And so that was very exciting for me. I didn't realize that was gonna happen. And, uh, but at that point, as we're looking over the cliff's edge, at Dodger Stadium, you could say that we were very near Dodger Stadium. We were, we were near it, close to it. Uh, it was almost as if we could throw a baseball into center field from there. Well, I mean, I could. I don't know about any, but I... <laughs> But because we're not rock climbers, there was no way for us to get from where we were to Dodger Stadium. We couldn't get there. Um, it was down a cliff, and uh, the only way we could do it would be uh, actually to go the long way around which meant, in that instance, turning around and going the opposite direction. Um, and rather than you know, just a short distance where you could throw a baseball, uh, we're talking about to actually walk down the mountain to get there, we're talking about probably a couple of miles. And in all actuality, at most points along the way, had we done that, that journey, we would have been statically further from the stadium than we were when we were standing on the cliff looking down into it. Uh, but only statically further. Because in terms of progress, we would have been getting nearer and nearer the stadium with every single step that we took. And C.S. Lewis tells a parable similar to this. Uh, I stole it from him. I just made it my own. Uh, in the introduction to his book, The Four Loves. And as he's talking about that, he goes on to say, at the cliff's top, we are, uh, we are near the village. But however long we sit there, we shall never be any nearer our bath and our tea. That's a bit more sort of homey than going to a game at Tundra Stadium. But, and then what he goes on to argue is that getting closer to God is like that. He puts it this way. He says, nearness of approach is by definition increasing nearness. Do you follow that? Nearness of approach is by definition with every step increasingly getting nearer and nearer to where you're going. And he says that's what it's like to, to get nearer and nearer to God. So to draw near to God is to move towards him, even when it seems like you're walking down the backside of the mountain. To draw near to God, he says, is to continually, to daily take steps in your life closer and closer and closer to him. The thing about it this way, if you were to stay put, right, just stand at the cliff's edge, and you were to stand there, you know, whether that's through laziness or maybe indifference or stubbornness. You might, like you're near, right? But if you stay there, you'll never get any nearer. And by the way, to, to walk away, to walk, you know, intentionally to say, I'm not going to make my direction there, is to continually put more and more distance between you and God. And I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it too much because, you know, the Bible is a very complicated book at, at points. And so I don't want to oversimplify this. But this idea of this walk towards God 
this nearness of approach is really what the, the book of Colossians is all about. It's about walking day by day towards God until we reach full maturity. In fact, Paul uses that word or some word like it over and over and over again, that word of full. And we'll see that as we go through the book in the coming weeks. But what Colossians is saying to us is you want to draw near to God? Do you want to become more mature? Then the way you do that is through a nearness of approach. In other words, it's step by step, day by day, week by week, that actually brings you nearer to God. I really like the way Paul puts it later in Colossians. Put this on the screen. It's in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And by the way, where it says continue to live your lives in him, that's actually just one word. Uh, It's one word, and it's the word walk. And so really, you could say continue to walk in him. And so that entire phrase is just the the Greek word walk. It's, It's a metaphor. And so what's the metaphor? It's this, that living is like walking. Living is like walking. In other words, to stagnate, to stay put, to stand on the cliff's edge and only look in, is not to live. But walking is living. And so if you're stagnating in your spiritual life, the metaphor, which again is used all through the Bible, the metaphor would suggest that you're not really living. At least you're not spiritually living. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, over the next couple of months. How do we become more and more spiritually alive day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year? And we're going to do that using the same metaphor the Bible gives and the same metaphor actually that uh, we introduced back in September. So you might recognize this uh, graphic a little bit, Um, but walking day by day along a well-worn path. In other words, a path that uh, Christians have been walking for for generations. Uh, And today we're only looking at the introduction to the book of Colossians, the first two verses, but there is quite a bit in there. And so we're going to look at it actually in four parts. So how can you break down two verses into four parts? Well, let me show you. Uh, Part one, what they're called. Part two, where they're called. Part three, with whom they're called. And part four, to what they're called. There's a lot of W's in there. Um, And so part one, what they're called. And in verse 1, Paul introduces himself, and he's got a co-author named Timothy, and we're going to spend plenty of time uh, talking about them as the series goes on. But here's what I want you to see today. I want you to see what Paul calls these Christians in Colossae. What does he call them? Uh, Because what you call somebody can tell you a lot about them. Um, I've mentioned this before, and some of you will know immediately where I'm going with this as soon as I start talking about it. But I played on the basketball team in high school, and my teammates gave me a nickname. And uh, looking back on it, it it wasn't very nice. It's not a nice nickname. Um, I guess you could say maybe it's endearing, but not nice. Uh, But it is what teenagers do. And I was was actually thinking about this week. And uh, I was trying to think, did any other players on the team have a nickname? And nobody else did. I was the only one with a nickname. So that kind of makes it worse. Um, And I'm kind of holding this back, trying to create some suspension. Uh, Some of you know what the name is, but the rest of you, do you want to know what it is? The sloth. <laughs> and to be fair, they went wrong because I was always the last one down the court, you know. Like if somebody else passed the basketball, it was like this, like really fast. And if I passed it, it was like, <laughs> you know, others would like shoot the ball really quick. And I was like, let's 
put it in the basket. And so they weren't wrong. It checks out. That is, they did describe me well. And I wasn't really offended by it because of the shoe fits. The only thing that actually really bothered me was one of the guys on the team would make wookie noises at me. And it bothered me for two reasons. One, that's, you know, a wookie is not a sloth, it's an alien. Also, it's just unnecessary. So, like, I would get the ball, like, during a game, and he would just make a wookie noise, and you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that, just, that, thank you for that. But what you call someone can tell you a lot about them. And so, look closely now at what Paul calls the members of this church in Colossae. Look at this, uh, verse 2. To God's holy people in Colossae. And so he calls them holy people. And do you know what that word is there for holy people? I love this. I absolutely love this. Here's the word for holy people. You could easily translate it as the word saints. And when you and I think of a saint, we tend to think of somebody extra special, right? Somebody who's done something extraordinary. In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, to be designated a saint, you have to have performed a miracle. Otherwise, that's it. You can't be a saint. And so in our culture, a saint is equal to a miracle worker, right? So sainthood is only for the very elite. So no one named Sloth would ever be made a saint. (laughs) Only that's not what the word meant when Paul wrote this. And so for Paul, the word saint is actually the best synonym that we have for the word Christians. Because, you know, Paul never once uses... Paul wrote, like, a large portion of the New Testament. And he never once in any of his writings used the word Christian. Not once. Do you know what word he used to describe us? Saints. Over and over and over again, he used the word saint. And so a saint is a Christian. A Christian is a saint. No special class No miracle worker. So if you are a Christian, you are a saint. Stephanie, you are a saint. From now on, you are Saint Stephanie. Okay? You got that? Okay. Aaron Ballard, you are a saint. Yes. Believe it or not, Nelson. Saint. St. Nelson, I know. We should just, we're, I'm calling you St. Nelson for now. I really am. I'm, Stephanie, it's going to go to your head, so I'm not going to do it. But Nelson. Now let this sink in. When Paul addresses not just the special class in the church, but the church, the whole church, he calls them saints. Every single one of them is saint. And I, just sink that in. If you're, let that sink in. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Now, the word, actually very literally, is holy one. And you say, well, hold on a minute. I've met Nelson. (laughs) Or, you you know, maybe you're more introspective. And you can say, well, I'm not holy. Like, I haven't even been holy today. I've only been up for four hours. How could you call me a holy? How how could you call me a saint? Well, it goes on in verse 2, and Paul says the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And so a Christian, a saint, a holy one is a person who is in Christ. 
And we actually talk about this a lot here because it comes up in the Bible all the time. But the phrase in Christ, it's all over the place in the New Testament. And almost every single place it pops up, it's talking about a union. In other words, a Christian is a person who is united to Christ. You are in Christ. It's actually, it's marriage language, right? The two have become one. And when two people get married, what are they doing? Well, they're joining everything together. They're joining together physically, materially, spiritually, emotionally, legally, every way you can think of, they are joining together. The two have become one. All that belongs to the groom now belongs to the bride. All that belongs to the bride now belongs to the groom. And that's what a union is. And so to say that a Christian is united to Christ means that what belongs to Christ now belongs to the Christian. Which means his holiness. His holiness, because you're in him, united with him, is now your holiness. That's the language of union. Now, what's the nature of that? Well, here's how Paul puts it later in the letter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. You put that on the screen. It says, when you, again, he's still talking to the saints. He's talking to the holy ones. When you, the saints, were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And so a Christian, a holy one, is a person who was dead in their sins, but through the cross of Christ has now been made alive with him. A Christian is a person whose sins have been forgiven and the holiness of Christ is given to that person. That's why Paul can call a Christian a holy one. Because your sins have been removed and the holiness of Christ now belongs to you. And so if you're a Christian, you're holy, not by your efforts, but by the effort of Christ in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And not only that, we briefly looked at this verse earlier uh, in chapter 2, verse 6. Can we put that one back up? It says, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And so notice the first part of that. A Christian is a person who has made Christ Jesus their Lord. Meaning... They make Jesus the king of their life. They live their life in him. They live their life under his sovereignty, under his rule, under his reign. He is their Lord. And so a Christian, a saint, a person who is in Christ, is a person who has been brought from death to life through the forgiveness of sins and who has made Christ their Lord. So when Paul says to the saints, to the holy ones, that's who he's writing to, people who have experienced that. Now, it's worth pausing at this point and asking yourself the question, am I a Christian? Am I a saint? And here's how you can tell. It's not the only way, but this is a way that you can tell. A Christian sees and admits that they are fully in debt to God. On the other hand, a moral person is always trying to put God in their debt. In other words, a Christian says, God, I've made a mess of everything. I've gone my own way. I've rejected you and your love. Please forgive me. It's like the parable that Jesus tells about the guy who stands in the back and beats his chest 
And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Versus the moral person who says, God, look at all the good things I've done. And in that same parable, he talks about the religious person, the moral person who walks up to the front to the altar and says, God, look at all these great things. The Christian is the person who who recognizes that we're in God's debt because of how much he's given to us. And if you're a Christian, if that's you, then back to Colossians 2, verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Walk. Continue to walk in him. Day by day. Week by week. Month by month. Year by year. Now, if that's not you, if you hear that and you think, well, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. Um, I'd love to invite you either come talk to me after the service. I'd love to explain to you more about how to become a Christian. Or if you're not ready for that, then I just want to invite you to stick around our church for a few months as we go through this, as we talk about what is it, what's the goal of being a Christian? What's the whole point of this? Christianity is one of those things that's better figured out from the inside. So stick around. Um, And if you do that, that means you're a seeker. And this church is full of seekers, full of them. And so you're in good company. All right, so that's part one, who, uh, what they're called. Uh, now part two, where they're called. And that first point was longer. I recognize that. The rest of these are much shorter, okay? So don't freak out. Uh, the rest will be shorter. But part two, where they're called. And we just got done seeing that the saints in Colossae are in Christ, united to him in every way. Uh, but look at verse two again. Not only are they in Christ, but notice they're in Colossae. Do you see that language there? That's that union language once again. Uh, in fact, in the original language, the two statements, they're actually, they're actually put right next to each other. The English translation kind of separates them out a little bit and puts some stuff in the middle. But literally, in the Greek, it reads to the saints, in Christ, in Colossae. They're right next to each other. Those four words all right next to each other. In Christ, in Colossae. Now, what's that getting at? I think what that's getting at is the place where you live is not incidental. It's intentional. You do not live, if you live in Los Angeles or wherever you live, but if you live here in Los Angeles, you are not here incidentally. You're not here just because you happen to be born here or because you happen to take a job here. This is where you're called. Now, I didn't know actually in our... uh, liturgy that Joy was going to rewrite uh, verse 2. But that is so spot on. That is 100% spot on. We'll see that in a minute. But just think with me for a minute before we think about LA. Think with me for a minute about the city of Colossae. At the time that Paul was writing it, uh, it it had become an insignificant town politically and culturally and economically. It used to be this kind of big hub for the region, but it sort of fell. It had an earthquake and basically it sort of fell out of style. Uh, And so it's become this sort of insignificant town. And um, when I was living in England, I mean, I were in England, uh, we lived in a city called Liverpool. And uh, I think, I actually think it is amongst one of the most interesting places you could ever visit uh, or you could ever live. In fact, uh, it it is also one of the most beautiful cities in all of the UK. Uh, So much so that for the last 20 years, it has, the entire city center has been a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So like a lot of times UNESCO will be like, that building is a heritage site or that area, you know, is a heritage site, that little, you know, block or something like that. 
Liverpool, the whole city center, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, that's how beautiful and important it is in its, in its past. However, uh, just like Colossae fell out of style, uh, Liverpool fell out of style. Uh, so much so that um, it sort of got this not so great reputation within the UK. And so when we were living there and I would travel around the country and I would uh, meet people and they would say, oh, you live here, that's cool, where do you live? And I would say, oh, Liverpool. And their response almost 100% of the time would be with uh, all of the polite dis disdain that a British person can muster. <laughs> They'd say, why? Why would you live there? Uh, it still happens today. I actually have a little bit of PTSD. Uh, when I meet somebody who's British, I'm like, oh, I used to live in England. They'd say, and I already know their response, and so sometimes I just kind of say it under my breath, oh, Liverpool, and then they just say, why? <laughs> and I get the sense that if you're from Colossae in the first century, and someone asks you where you're from, you, you get a similar response, right? Say you travel around, oh, I'm from Colossae. People would be like, why? And uh, just being real for a minute, the same thing actually happens now that we live in, in Los Angeles, and I'm sure you've experienced it too, especially people that moved from somewhere else. Uh, it happened to me earlier this week, I was in another state, which shall remain nameless, uh, in the Midwest, in a relatively rural area, it wasn't Texas, okay? Uh, it was a relatively rural area, and I, I met a bunch of new people, and most of the people I met, they're like, oh, where are you from? They're like, oh, Los Angeles, and they would just kind of not say anything. You know, that's like the nice Midwest thing to do, you just don't say anything. Uh, but one person did the thing that I often get, which was, you know what they said? Why? Why would you live there? And the truth is, I don't expect anyone who doesn't live here to understand. I love this city. But I don't expect anyone who doesn't live here to understand because it's not their calling. And to be honest, a lot of these places I go and they're like, why would you live there? I'm like, why would you live here? <laughs> but this city is in their calling. But it is my calling. And if you live here, whether you've lived here for 10 minutes or 10 years or your whole life, it's your calling. You are not here incidentally. You are here intentionally. If you are a Christian, you are a saint, united with Christ, and I love this from our liturgy, united with Los Angeles. That language of in Christ, remember, that's union language, united in every way. And Paul mirrors that when he says where they're from, united with Los Angeles. And I think that's the force of Paul placing these phrases right next to each other, in Christ, in Colossae. They are an essential union with Christ and an essential union with their city. And so are you. So how should we think of our city then? Well, yes, it is the place where we live and work and go on dates and live with our families and spend time with our friends. And it is, the weather is amazing and the food is incredible and there's amazing museums and access to uh, wonderful shows that we can go to and all of these amazing things. But more than all of that, it's a mission field. You are not here incidentally. You are here intentionally. And let me show you why. 
there are about 10 million people who live in Los Angeles County. Uh, and in a somewhat outdated study I read from USC, this is from 2016, so it's actually, the numbers are worse now than it was in 2016. Uh, they found that only 8% of people who live in Los Angeles County would consider themselves a Christian. So I went to Bible college, but I checked the math. Follow me on this. That means out of 10 million people, that's 800,000. Which, hey, 800,000, that's a lot of people. That sounds great. But let's flip it around. 9.2 million people don't know Christ. Let that sink in. 9.2 million people. And that sounds overwhelming because it is overwhelming. That's, you know, if LA County was a state, it'd be the ninth largest state in America. And I think at 9.2 million, it might still be the ninth largest state in America. And it sounds overwhelming. So then let's ask the question, how does a little church like ours make a dent in that? And here's the answer. One person at a time. Your neighbor probably isn't a Christian. Most of the people you work with probably aren't Christians. On top of that, there are probably hundreds of thousands of people in our city who used to be part of a church, but since COVID, they stopped going. A university in the Midwest, I will name this state, it's Illinois, uh, but a university in the Midwest did some research on that, that very phenomenon, and what they found was, get this, what they found in their research, and this was like wide ranges, not a small sample size, a big sample size, like a proper university study. What they found in their study was that 100% of people who stopped going to church in the last couple of years would say yes to coming to church with you if you just invited them. 100%. And so how do we make a dent in this big city, I say start there. Start with your friend, your coworker, your neighbor, your family member who used to go to church and invite them. And statistically, I can't guarantee this because there's always a margin of error, but statistically, they will say yes. That's how our little church makes a difference in our massive city, one friend at a time. This is our calling. If you're a Christian, you're a saint united with Christ, united with Los Angeles. If you live in the city, God has called you here. This is your primary mission field. We need to think of it that way. That we should say about ourselves, I don't just live here incidentally. I'm called here. I am called to this city. In order that, I would invite others to know Christ. And so if you're a saint, if you're a Christian, that is your calling. Now, part three, with whom are they called? With whom are they called? And again, these points are getting shorter, so don't freak out. But notice the language here. In verse one, he calls Timothy our brother. And in verse two, he calls all of them brothers and sisters. Now, what's that getting at? Well, that's family language. But notice what makes them brothers and sisters. It's not a biological family. He's not like, you know, uh, to the Miller family. That's not, it's not a biological family. Look closely to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. 
which means what they share in common, their common bond is not biology. It's not affinity to the same music. It's not the same hobbies. It's not a political affiliation. They're not even of the same race. They're not of the same religious background. They're not bound by socioeconomic class because as we read on in this letter, what we're going to find out is that some of them were actually slaves. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. So we're talking about very drastically different, even socioeconomic backgrounds. And so they're not united because they're the same race. If they're not united because they have the same interests or the same social status, what unites them? What can unite people who really have no business knowing one another, let alone being friends and loving one another? What does he say? The brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what unites them. And that is true in our church today. Like, look around. Like, look around the room. It's a hodgepodge, okay? Uh, some people are from L.A., born and raised here. Some people are from Texas, and that's okay. <laughs> some are from Europe. Some are from Central America. Some from South America. Some even from north of the border, believe it or not. Some people are wealthy and some people barely get by. Some are young, some are old, some are middle-aged. Some are political conservatives, some are political liberals. Don't shout, please. Some like Taylor Swift and others have good taste in music. It's... Okay, all right. Some people are really mad right now, but that is only to help you mature in Christ as you deal with your anger in a godly way. If any of those things were what unites us, then this would be a boring church. I wouldn't even want to come here. And that's because we wouldn't grow as mature. Because we wouldn't learn how to bear with one another full of grace and peace. But here's what I want us to take from this family language of brothers and sisters in verses 1 and 2. You cannot grow to maturity in Christ on your own. The Bible doesn't actually leave that option to us. And I'm going to say this very directly, okay? And I'm going to be direct because the Bible is direct, but I'm also going to be direct because I love you. If you say, I am a Christian, but I don't need a church, I can just do this on my own. You are disobeying the Bible. I'm sorry to be so direct, but that's what's in there. And if you do that, if you go off on your own and and you leave the church behind, does God abandon you? Of course not. He says he'll never leave or forsake us. And so will he lovingly and patiently come after you like the shepherd leaving the 99 to get the one, of course he will. But if you do that, if that's like something you intentionally do, notice who you are in that parable. You're the sheep who wandered off. And in doing that, you're abandoning the shepherd and the rest of the flock. So I'm sorry to be so direct. But here's why this is so critical. Uh, 
Bill had us look at this passage last week, Hebrews chapter 3. Can we put that up? Hebrews 3 on the screen, Lance. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, if it just stopped there, it'd be like, wow, that's really hard. How would I ever do that on my own? Well, you're not expected to because the next verse. But encourage one another, how often? Daily. And just to give all the force, the writer says, as long as it's called today. So if today ever stops being called today, you are off the hook. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so what's the way that we become hardened? What's the way that we grow an unbelieving heart that turns away from God? We try and do this thing on our own. That's how to do it. Being alone, having no one to encourage you, being alone and having no one to encourage means you will become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And I'm telling you this not because I like to be, stir the pot. I'm telling you this because I love you. And I want you to grow to full maturity in Christ. And selfishly, I want to grow to full maturity in Christ. And so I need you. I can't become fully mature in Christ without you, specifically you. Put your name in the blank. I can't. And no one in this room can. And you can't become fully mature in Christ without us, the rest of us. That is the way God designed it. All right. Last point. So part one, what they're called, saints. Part two, where they're called, to their city, Part three, with whom they're called, the rest of the saints in the church. Part four, to what are they called? And this one will be very quick. Look at the end of verse two. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Briefly, what is grace? Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. It's it's seeing Christian life and growth as a free gift from God. It's something that God gives to us that we don't deserve. That's grace. And what is peace? The Bible's definition of peace uh, comes from the word shalom which means completeness, wholeness, actually means fullness. Which again, I mentioned earlier, this letter uses that word fullness over and over and over and over again in all kinds of different ways. And it's in these two words, grace and peace from God our Father, uh, that we begin to see the very beginnings of what is Paul's desire for these saints that live in this city. And then by extension, what's God's desire for you and I who live in this city? It's that we would receive grace and peace. And that particular saying, it's a foreshadowing of what he says at the very end of chapter one, because the end of chapter one, he actually finally just comes out and says really clearly, this is my goal. This is what I want for you. Uh, Look at this, uh, chapter one, verse 28. Uh, Put that on the screen. It says, he, meaning Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that, here's the reason, so that we may present everyone Fully mature in Christ. That's his goal. Full maturity. To become fully mature in Christ. Not immature in Christ. Not partially mature in Christ. But fully mature in Christ. Not fully mature in our careers. Not fully mature in our relationships or our parenting. Or fully mature in our knowledge. But fully mature in Christ. Christ. 
That is the Christian ideal, to be fully mature in him. And the way to get there that Paul is going to present to us through this whole letter, the, the way to get there is not like overnight. It, it's not a, nobody has ever been discipled quickly. The way to get there to become fully mature in Christ is the metaphor that he introduced. He says, continue to walk in him. It's like walking the mountain trail step by step, closer and closer to God. It's the nearness of approach that actually brings you nearer to God. And so if you take just one application from today, let it be this. Don't stand on the mountain cliff looking down at what could be. Instead, draw near to God through a nearness of approach. And yes, sometimes as you do that, you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And yes, sometimes you will grow tired and weary. But with every step towards God, we draw nearer and nearer to him. And in doing that, we become more and more like him. One of the most amazing things uh, that it says in the Bible is that one day, when we see Christ again, when we see him face to face, you know what the result will be of us seeing him face to face? I love this. It says, we will become like him when we see him face to face. Nearness of approach, draw near to him. Now, what do those steps look like? Now, it's very, very ordinary. It's almost painfully ordinary how to do this. But it's in their ordinariness that we're, these things are available to everyone. And actually, it's not that hard. Here it is, four things. How do you take steps? How do you go through that nearness of approach? Number one, daily prayer. You don't need anything. Just daily prayer. Number two, daily reading God's word. Hearing from him. Number three, weekly gathering with your church. Why? So that you will not become hardened by sin's deceitfulness, and so neither will I, because you're here to encourage me, and I'm here to encourage you. Number four, regularly serving others. And that could be here in this church, that could be out in the community, but regularly serving others. So daily prayer, daily reading your Bible, weekly gathering with the church, regularly serving others. It's that ordinary. It's that simple. It's not complicated. It's not novel. It's old. Christians have been doing this for two millennia. It's the well-worn path. And by the way, if you want help with the daily stuff, some of us are going through, um, since the fall, a day-by-day devotional. And we actually ran out. Next week, I'll have a stack of them here so you can take one. Uh, in the meantime, um, over on the, the counter over there, there's a piece of paper that looks like this. And that has uh, just the, helps you do the prayer part of the day-by-day. Um, and so take one of those if you want help with that. And come back next week and you can get one of those books. Um, if, by the way, you've been doing that, but the, I know the busyness of the holidays and all the stuff, it's probably underneath a stack of, you know, Christmas gifts or something like that. But if you have one of those books at home and you were doing that, no guilt. You have to tell me what day you're on. I don't care. Um, but pick it up again this week. Step by step, day by day, week by week. Let's draw nearer to God. Because that nearness of approach is by definition increasing nearness. Let me close with this. Eugene Peterson, we often quote him around here saying that Christian growth is a long obedience in the same direction, which I love because it's a walking metaphor. It's a movement metaphor. 
Um, but in his memoirs, he actually says something similar. He wrote uh, this in his memoirs. He said, I came across a poem by Denise Levertov in which she uses the phrase, every step and arrival. She was giving an account of her development as a poet, but I recognized in her phrase a metaphor for my own formation. Every step, an essential component that was silently, and I love this, slowly being integrated into a coherent life and vocation. Every step and arrival. I like that. Every prayer and arrival. Every time I open God's word and arrival. Every Sunday I gather together with other believers and arrival. Every time I serve another person and arrival. Every step and arrival. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this book that we're going to study. Lord, we thank you for how it's going to challenge us. And Lord, I pray that we would take those day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year steps, that nearness of approach, and that in so doing, we would become more and more like you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.